Exodus chapter 40. I'm going to read verses 34 to the end of the chapter. But first I'm going to do a little bit of a build-up to it like I normally do so you understand what's going on. Uh, first, the theme of the book of Exodus uh, is found in chapter 3 when Moses asks the Lord at the burning bush, Who are you? What is your name? Uh, and the Lord says, My name is Jehovah. I am who I am. Uh, tell the nation of Israel that I am has uh, sent you to them. Uh, and he said, By the name El Shaddai, the mighty God, uh, I revealed myself to the fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but I didn't reveal myself as Jehovah to them, a covenant-keeping God uh, who does all his good pleasure, who makes covenants with people and redeems them, and all of that almighty power that works for the good of his people. That This is a God who has a people that he calls by his name, uh, and nothing can thwart that plan. And so when... Moses goes to Pharaoh and gives the message to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, who is Jehovah? I don't know Jehovah. And so that's the same question, but God is revealing himself to this unbelieving Pharaoh in a different way than he reveals himself to his people. To his people, he reveals himself as the comforter and the protector and the provider and the deliverer and the redeemer and as a just judge uh, to Pharaoh and the armies of the wicked one. So this is the theme of the book of Exodus, that we might know who Jehovah is, who is the Lord. And through this whole convoluted history throughout the book of Exodus, you see Israel falling into grievous sin, uh, Moses making intercession for them, and then the last half of the book is the building of the tabernacle. And you read through all of this history that seems kind of dull unless you know what's going on here. The whole tabernacle is being built, and if you can imagine it in your head, the entrance of it is facing east. And as you enter into it, you know that in the center of the building are the cherubim who surround the throne of grace, surround the Ark of the Covenant. They are, uh, the scripture tells us, the Jehovah dwells above the cherubim. There, There's no, you don't see an image there, but you see his throne, the throne room. And so throughout all of this imagery of the tabernacle, of which there's a whole bunch, the central imagery, imagery is Eden, the, the garden of God being restored. And even deeper than that is fellowship with God being restored. And that's a theme I want to talk about tonight. As you go into, uh, you remember when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they looked back and passed the flaming sword that kept the way to the, to the, uh, the Holy of Holies. Uh, they saw the cherubim. Uh, by the throne of God, where they used to meet with God and walk and talk with him and fellowship with him. Now they saw the holy cherubim and the sword keeping the way. Here in the tabernacle, this is, there's a way now that's being revealed. The sword now is going to fall on the sacrifices at the entrance. Uh, and so there's an altar right at the entrance where the sword of God's wrath comes down, not on the human beings, but on the lambs. Uh, in, in looking forward to the Lamb of God, which will take away the sins of the world. And then the priest takes that blood and he walks into the Holy of Holies once a year and he offers that blood on the mercy seat. And everything is in image and shadow. And But fellowship with God is being restored. There's a way in. And then as you go through all of the 
decor and all of the descriptions of all the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, you come to chapter 39 where the priests are getting prepared. And God is giving Bezalel the instructions for the priest's robes. Uh, they're blue and they're covered with the ephod. And on the ephod is uh, uh, the 12, uh, 12 precious stones. And on each stone is engraved a name of the tribe of Israel. So the priest is bearing on his chest, in his breast, the names of the people of Israel. He's bearing the tribes of Israel on his chest. And, the, and that ephod is consecrated. He washes himself with water. It's holy to the Lord. You see holy, holy, holy all the way through this section. And when the priest is consecrated, made holy, when he puts the breastplate on bearing the names of the nation of Israel, when he offers the sacrifice at the altar, and when that's all done... Then we come to chapter 37 and the or chapter 40 and the end of the book of Exodus. And look what happens right at the end, verse uh, 34. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward on all their juries, journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And here, God is now revealing himself as the covenant God of the people of Israel, the ancient church. Uh, they, he is dwelling in their midst. There's the tabernacle of, uh, of meeting, where God is meeting with his people. He's in the Holy of Holies, and it's surrounded by shadows and ceremonies and types. Uh, but the cloud, the cover by day they can see, and the fire, the, the, the light that shines and gives them light, they, uh, um, they can see at night. And this is an important part of Israel's psyche. It's worked into their way of thinking. It means something to be the people of God. And here God is making a promise that he will dwell in their midst. What this means... Why on earth do we want God to dwell in our midst? The whole thing is that without God in our midst, there's no point in anything we do. We were created to fellowship with God. Without God in our midst, there's no point in food and drink and pleasure and everything we long for. Like I said on Sunday, everything that we thirst after is fulfilled only if God is in our midst, if God dwells among us. Now, from a very practical perspective, God dwelling with Israel meant that he was feeding them, he was giving them water, he was protecting them from enemies. Uh, Moses recounts 40 years later in the book of Deuteronomy that their shoes didn't wear out, their garments didn't wear out, that God protected and watched over everything they did. He was their God and they were his people. Centuries later, when the nation of Israel is settled uh, in um in the land, and they're all traveling to Jerusalem, they're reminded of another time that they were walking through the wilderness. And I've talked about this psalm before. Uh, and so in Psalm 121, the psalm of ascent, he's talking about God who's 
to his protecting and keeping and guarding his people. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will not slumber or sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade at your right hand. See that imagery of the cloud cover covering Israel from the hot desert sun as they're traveling in their in their journeys. The moon by night, the Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. That's the beauty of the creator of heaven and earth entering into relationship with his people, his covenant people. He's redeemed us. He's purchased us to be his own. He has guided us. He's directed us. And it means something to be the people of God. Throughout the book of Exodus, we saw that. Let my people go. These aren't just any people. These are my people that you're messing with. These are my firstborn. Let them go. And yet, Our sinful nature gets impatient. We still live in a sinful world. We still live in a corrupt world. We still live in a world where there is pain. There is boredom. There's restlessness. There's betrayal. There's anger. There's murder. There's crime. There's slander. There's gossip. There's abuse. All sorts of things that happen in this world. It's always happened in this world. God is lifting up our eyes to where he is dwelling amidst the cherubim, and he's exhorting us, calling us to trust in him, to rest in him. How many warnings throughout the Old Covenant were, wait patiently for the Lord, and he will lift you up. And yet how hard it is to wait. Israel, 40 years, wandered in the wilderness. Their first time through, they still fought like slaves. They got to the land of Canaan, and they refused to go in. Uh, they, they believed that God had abandoned them, that they weren't going to defeat the giants, and what's the point? We're all going to die, and they were ready to stone Moses, and so they didn't enter in. The next generation did enter in. The centuries go by. All the trouble and the turmoil and the difficulties all boil down to one thing. Israel didn't believe the promise. And they wanted to be just like all the nations of the world. They saw Assyria, and they saw Babylon, and they saw these great nations that build tremendous things. And they had that same lust that human nature lusts after for the shiny things, the beautiful things, the, the, uh, uh, the, the security and the peace. And the, we could make treaties and we don't have to wander through the wilderness anymore. And we don't have to eat the stinking manna day after day after day. We can be just like all the other nations. Why do we have to be the people of God? Everything is just going wrong. And God rebukes them. He makes them promises. He calls on them to believe. And finally, they go into exile, and God's glory is removed from the temple. We read about that in Exodus chapter 10, when he's, or sorry, in Ezekiel chapter 10, when the, um, uh, the glory cloud is lifted, and that very mysterious image of the chariot with the wheels turning every which way, uh, that was simply a vision of God's glory. And there's two things about this vision. First, it's leaving the temple. But second, it's with the captives in Babylon. So the cloud of God's glory isn't located in a place 
like Israel had begun to believe that they were that God was stuck with them because that's where the glory was. The glory goes with the people of God, whomever God chooses to reveal himself to. But here in the in, in Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel sees this. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of God was above them. And this chariot then removes, and he goes up into the mountains, and it's gone. He sees the cherubim, the throne room of God, the dwelling place of God, leaving the temple. And of course, then it was only a matter of time before the Babylonian army came and utterly destroyed the temple and tore it down, and Solomon's temple was no more. This caused the faithful in Israel to mourn. They understood what Moses had understood centuries earlier. If God isn't with us, what's the point in any of this? If God doesn't go with us, what's the point? And now God is gone. The book of Lamentations is about this. The presence of God has disappeared. And they waited. And they waited. Seventy years later, they come back and they build the temple again because God still keeps his covenant. He's still Jehovah. He's still revealing himself to his people, that he's merciful and gracious and long-suffering. He comes in wrath But where sin is, grace much more abounds. But now there's a promise. Even in this darkness, the people, Joshua and Zerubbabel, will start to build this temple again, just as God commanded him to. And it's smaller. It's not as fancy as Solomon's temple. And the people complained because they saw the former glory. But they weren't really talking about the gold and silver. They were talking about the glory cloud that was taken away. And they said, where is that? Is God going to dwell with us again? Because the glory cloud descended in Bezalel's day, the end of the book of Exodus. The glory cloud descended in Solomon's day. But here in Zerubbabel's day, that temple is built and the glory cloud doesn't descend. And the people are discouraged. Where is it? God sends the prophets, Haggai, a century after that, Malachi. Haggai writes this. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, and I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine. But the glory of this temple will be greater than the glory of the former temple. So God is making a promise that the glory is still going to come. And then Malachi clarifies this in Malachi chapter 3. He says, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And he goes on to say, but who will abide the day of his coming? For he is like a a refiner's fire. It's a tremendous thing because then Jesus does come into his temple. And he cleanses his temple. Uh, He is the Lord that has come into his temple. But even then he says, they said, give me a sign. He says, destroy this temple. In three days I will raise it up. So here's where we are with Christ. And here's what I want to point out today. 
<clears throat> and hopefully I can make this clear. In the picture in the book of Exodus, the high priest sanctifies himself, sets himself apart for God's service. He puts on the ephod. He puts the name of his church on his breast. He puts that on and bearing the name of the church of God, he enters into God's presence with the blood of the sacrifice and the glory of the Lord fills the temple. Every year on the day of atonement, the priest would enter into that holy of holies again, bearing the blood of the covenant. In John chapter 17, Jesus it's called the great high priestly prayer where he's taking the name of his people upon himself. And he's this, he says this, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. He's the high priest who has sanctified himself. As God, he never needed, needed to do that. God is holy, holy, holy. Uh, John says it was Jesus that was on the, on the throne that Isaiah saw. Uh, they beheld his glory and the cherubim were covering their face. But he became flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Do remember what the, uh, uh, Luke says about the, what the shepherds saw? They saw the angels singing and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. The glory of the Lord was now again with man for the first time since the days of Ezekiel. And now Jesus has grown. He's going to the cross. He's taking his people upon himself, all of his sins upon himself. And he's sanctifying himself as the great high priest. And then he offers himself as a lamb to the wrath of God. Everything that happened... When he, uh, when he broke the bread for the Lord's Supper, he said, This is my body which is broken for you. Everything he did was for the purpose of laying himself down as a sacrifice for sin. He could have stopped it at any time. And so the writer of Hebrews says he does not need daily, as the high priests of old, to offer up sacrifices. First for his own sin and then for his people because he didn't have any sin. He says, For he did this once for all. When he offered up himself, when the high priest offered himself as a sacrifice, remember what happened? The veil in the temple was torn in two. The way into the throne room of God, the Holy of Holies, the place where the cherubim were first seen in the Garden of Eden by our father Adam, that place was made open for all. And thus he fulfills what was written of him in Psalm 40. It says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Talking about the blood of bulls and goats. My ears you have opened, or my body you have prepared. An obedient sacrifice, my obedient body. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. O oh my God, your law is within my heart. So here is the perfect, without blemish, sacrifice for sin. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Offered by the great high priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has sanctified himself, consecrated himself as the priest, took his people upon himself, united himself to us. And then 
he walks into the Holy of Holies when he rises again on the third day. He ascends up into heaven with the blood of his sacrifice to the throne room of God. And then in Acts chapter 2, the glory cloud fills the temple, just like it did in Exodus chapter 40. The Holy Spirit is poured out. They saw the tongues of fire, the sound of the mighty rushing wind, the glory cloud of God filling the temple of God. This is why Paul, when he's preaching to the Corinthians, is dumbfounded that they didn't know this. They were living in fornication, which is contradictory. It was like going into the Holy of Holies and committing fornication. And so he says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? And now hopefully we know what that means. It has nothing to do with what your diet is or how much you exercise or whether or not you eat junk food. It means that your body, created by God, still subject to sin and death, is indwelt with the glory cloud of the presence of God. The Holy Spirit has filled you, the Spirit of Christ. And so now our access to God, his love and his care for us, his protection for us, it's not mediated by sinful priests anymore because each one of us is filled with the Spirit of God. And so by faith, we hold to him. The warning throughout the book of Hebrews is don't let go of this like they did in the, in the old covenant where they, they rejected it because of unbelief. They got bored and tired and didn't believe God. Don't do that. Hold on to him even through difficulties. And so what does it mean now that we're still in this wilderness, oftentimes outcast, dejected, wounded, despised, afraid, it means that our high priest still has our names written on his breastplate. And he is still in heaven making intercession with God for us because he is true and eternal God. It's not a picture of Jesus the priest arguing with God the Father who wants to kill us and Jesus saying, no, don't do that. There is only one God. It means that the blood of Christ is daily before the face of God. So he no longer sees our sins and our misery and our frailties and our weakness. He sees Christ. But it goes even deeper than that. In this day and age, it's, it's no secret that, that uh, I have spoken and written frequently on Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands and husbands, love your wives. Um, and with all of the foolishness that's taken over much of the evangelical world, the focus on this verse seems to be wives submit to your husband in really huge letters, and then maybe a word or two about husbands, and then the rest of it is just blah, blah, blah over. But that's not Paul's point. That's a secondary point. The main point of this passage is that the relationship between a husband and a wife Picture something tremendously grand that can't be put into any words. He says, for we are his body. We are members of his body, of Christ's body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So that does have implications in marriage. Paul is bringing that out. But don't miss the main point. Each of us are as intimately related to Christ as a husband and a wife joined in one flesh are. 
he is the head, we are the body. And if we change this to mean he is the authority and we are the obedient serfs, we've missed the point. It means he's this head, organic, and we are this, his body. If we're cut off from the head, we die. But we're held by the power of God, his body, flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. He carries us in his heart, just as we carry him in our heart, to use that picture from the ephod. We are his body. Our union with him is so close that everything he suffered, we suffered. It's as if we had died. We had suffered. We had borne the wrath of God for sin. That's why it would be unjust for God to punish us for our sins, because he's already punished our head for our sins. There's a flip side of this too. What this union means is not only that we are cleansed by his sufferings, but that Christ also partakes in our sufferings. Remember what he said in the parable of the sheep and the goats. He said, inasmuch as you didn't do this to the least of these, you did not do this to me. The neglect the abuse, the turning your back and the lack of compassion towards the wounded and the needy and the helpless who belong to Christ. Christ took that as an affront against himself. That's how closely united he is to his church, to his people. Everything that you are suffering, he is walking with you in because he is the flat head and you are the body and that's not separated even in your suffering. And so the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Suffer together with us. That's the word sympathize. But was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Back in chapter 2, he's talking about the same theme as our high priest. He took upon himself our flesh, not the flesh of angels, but our flesh. So not only did he go through suffering and rejection and pain and isolation and hatred and reproach and the abandonment of friends, but he's also joined with us when we go through the same things here on this earth. In fact, that's why we go through them, because we belong to Christ. And if they hated Christ, they will hate us. He is so closely united to his people that those who harm and neglect his people harm and neglect Christ himself. And he suffers with us because he is our head. And therefore, as we make our way through this wilderness on the way to the land of Canaan, heading towards Eden restored, which the temple was a picture of, Christ is walking with us the whole time. He is our shade at our right hand. He is the, uh, our protection. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. And nothing then can hinder us in this journey until we reach the end when every tear will be wiped away. That's what the scripture says about our suffering. Now, there's a whole lot of other things, a whole lot of questions that we're going to have. 
Why does this happen to me? Why is this happening now? What's the timing? What is God doing where so much doesn't seem to make any sense at all? And the scripture doesn't give us a play-by-play of everything that's going to happen. It doesn't say you're going to have a jolly grand old time. What it says is that Christ is with us every step of the way. He's actually walking with us, carrying our infirmities and our sufferings in the most intimate way. Just as the Father carried Israel with wings like an eagle. Only even deeper than that because he became flesh with us. In our suffering and in our grief, we deeply feel our need. And so this promise is designed for us to call out to him. Because often we don't call out to him because we're overcome with pride or despair. Or like the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, we think that we're rich, uh, that we're, uh, we have wealth, we have need of nothing, and we forget, as John says, that we are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. But in our suffering, we remember that we're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And so remember the promise. When he says this in Revelation 3, he says, You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And so when we're brought down to this lowest place, when we realize that we're naked, we realize we're poor, we realize we've got nothing, this is when we call out to the Lord. And listen to what he says then. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. There again is another intimate picture of fellowship. When we wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked are finally open in our ears to hear Jesus knocking at the door. We call and he comes in and dines with his church again and fellowships with his people. Uh, This is the beauty of this. It's all, all sorts of images used throughout scripture of our union with Christ. Um, according to our feelings, it ebbs and it flows, it ebbs and it flows. But he, as our covenant God, Jehovah God, can never leave us or forsake us. The glory cloud has filled his temple and it will never depart. With that, we'll close. Let's close in prayer and then I'll take any questions. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for your love and your care for us, even when we are at our weakest and our lowest and our most painful. uh, We know that you walk with us by faith. So cause us, Father, to be patient in tribulation, patient in adversity, and keep our heads lifted up toward where you are at the right hand of God. Dear Lord Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.